0: Uh, First of all, good morning. Good to see you all. God bless you. Please uh, open to the book of Luke. We're going to actually go just uh, back to Luke chapter 11 for a minute, if you don't mind, please. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and one of the ushers or elders will bring you a Bible. I know we had one just over here. Does anybody else need a Bible? Just raise your hand. It's really important. You only retain about 20 to 30 percent of what you hear but when you see it you retain somewhere close to 60 to 70 percent and then with the Holy Spirit we know it's 100 percent right but but uh it's really important um as you come into this church that we open our Bibles we read line by line and verse by verse we see it to be so because it's God's word not because a man stands up here and thinks through his opinion or wisdom man's wisdom that doesn't really matter does it it's God's word and that's what speaks volumes into our hearts so uh, I ask that we turn to Luke 11 as many of you know we've come as far as Luke chapter 12 and but it, its context is really important. As we start to go into the portion of, or the latter half of chapter 12, it's so easy to forget the context and how all of this started with Jesus. Six and a half months, again, he's actually in 12, closer to six months to the cross and his crucifixion at that time. But Right now, we're about mm, a little bit, you know, six and a half, somewhere in there, months to the crucifixion. And if you remember how sort of chapter 11 started off, it was with Jesus actually stepping back. He was going to pray. And as he was praying, uh, his disciples, his apostles, they watched this. And as they looked on, they were just enamored by the beauty and the simple simplicity of his prayer. And, just, and I'm so grateful yeah. that the Lord has preserved this for us. They didn't turn around and... Um, and try to pretend like they could fake it till they made it, kind of thing. And I'm I'm so grateful for that. What they did instead was they said, Jesus, teach us how to pray. It's it's just transparent, it's honest, it's good. And so he did. And And then we know that what happened right after there is he taught us the power of prayer. We meet every Sunday at 6 p.m. to intercede for the body of Christ here, to be praying that way when our loved ones are in the hospital or sick. Many of you, all of you, have been covered in prayer at one time or another in this fellowship because of the different um, circumstances or trials or things that you go through. And we go through them with you. We bear each other's burdens. We may not always be face-to-face, but we are very kindled in the Spirit. And that's, there's nothing that, um, no proximity has anything to do with that. Well, Jesus turned around, and he um, beautifully was addressing the multitude as well. And then what happened is the lawyers and the Pharisees started to hear these things, and they were very upset that the multitude was starting to follow after Jesus and learning his word, listening to him, believing. And they had a crisis moment. And they were like, we've got to do something here. And so they said, you know, they didn't, after, again, three and a half years of public ministry or three years at this point, plus 30 plus years on the earth, they couldn't find one blemish or one thing that he's ever done wrong or one sin or anything like that. So they had nothing of real merit to, let you know, levy against him. So they said, you know what, um, he's he's demon-possessed. Do you remember that? We covered that. Oh, he's, he's just demon-possessed. That's what it is. It's, it's Beelzebub. And Jesus, again, so gentle, He he... He even entertained their thought, he, he turns and he says, "Don't you know that a house divided can't stand?" He says, "Even the enemy and the evil one knows this." He said, "And you're levying such an accusation that I do these miracles because of the work of by the Spirit of Beelzebub? You don't even know what you're saying. What you're saying is so unprob, un, un, you know, un, impossible, improbable that way." And so he went and he taught that and even actually taught us about unclean spirits and how if you're an unbeliever and you're deemed possessed, if you cast it out, one comes back seven times more powerful. We read that, again, not applying to the believer. (coughs) And then he described that, you know, we need to watch what comes into our eyes, our ears. The lamp is the body. You know, what will be light and darkness is what we watch. What do we allow to come through our eyes? Because after all, sin begins in our hearts. It runs through the filter. And then he got to verse 37 in chapter 11, where he started to declare, woe. And this is where it turns. He's specifically, and this is why I'm bringing this back here in context, he's specifically calling out the religious leaders and saying, woe to the Pharisees. Because at that time, these religious leaders, they were thought to be everything to the people. If they can, can't do it, then how could we ever do it? And with all the, if I can even use the term, the, the pomp and circumstances, they would walk into a room with the garb they would put on, literally kiss the ring kind of a moment. I mean, it was drawing men and women away from Christ. They were becoming so legalistic that they were missing out on the truth and the love that Jesus wanted to present them Simplicity in, in simplicity. excuse me. And so he, he built upon this, and then even... I remember in verse 35, and maybe if you were with us, you did as well in chapter eleven. The the lawyer, he specifically calls out one the lawyers and, and one of the lawyers that says he's there, you know, he's hearing him pronounce these woes on these religious leaders because they're indignant and they're obsessed with drawing men to themselves, women to themselves, instead of drawing them to Christ. He turns around and, you know, he's like, Hey, I, I'm f i am feel like you're pulling me into this too. I'm I'm feeling convicted here. You know, somebody should have tapped that guy on the shoulder and said, shh, just listen. Listen to what the Lord is saying here instead of becoming defensive. It's evidence of your heart by your very defense to think you have to defend yourself. But he doesn't catch on, and he says, then one of the lawyers answered and said to him, teacher, by saying these things, you reproach us also. And I'm thinking Jesus is probably like, "Uh uh-huh. Yep, that's about right. Yes, if you're putting yourself in that same camp, absolutely. And then what comes after this is is remarkable and so important for the last days, the days we're living in. Certainly all of it is. But he begins in verse 4, and he starts to teach the disciples not to put the stock in what man can do to you and the fear of man. Because when you begin to do that, while the threat can cripple you, the anxiety that can go behind that can become so overwhelming, but the reality is... We're not to fear another man or woman that way, and what they can do is there's only one word of fear. And he says very clearly here, and I say to you, friends, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body, and after they have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him, who after he has killed has the power to cast you into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. He, he Some people, Jesus in particular, have a way of just, Cutting right through what would have taken me an hour to say, he says so simply and so brilliantly, What are you feeling, fearing man or the world or what can be done here? He says, All they can do is harm the body. He says, But there's one in heaven, our Heavenly Father. You reverentially to fear Him because He has direct impact on the soul and spirit, and that's what will live for eternity. And that's a wise, wise word from God. And then he goes on in verse 8, and he says, obviously, that when you're in a situation, and he knew, because after all, he was heading to the cross. He knew that the religious leaders were the very ones that were going to, we know I put him on the cross, right? You put him on the cross. We know that. But we know the religious leaders are the ones that said what? Crucify him. Crucify him. And so he knows this is, this is what's said. So he turns and he sits and he says, well, he stands, as you prefer, and he says what? He says, be careful. During that time of circumstance, that trial, be very careful. You do not deny me, right? Don't deny me. No matter what you go through, and I, I think this is so powerful for these last days. I think Paul probably held on to these words when he was in prison. When I think of all the apostles, they were all martyred. When I think of what happens today, 200,000 Christians every year in the last 10 years, last decade at least, including this year alone, have been martyred, true disciples, because of their love for Jesus Christ. It's still happening. And he says, what do you do in those moments? Is that the time to cut and run? Is that a time to be focused on self-preservation? Or do you put Christ preeminent Humble yourself before him and never deny him before anyone. And he gives another wonderful word. And then he goes in and he talks about the parable of the rich man who put all his trust in his money and his barns and his food and all these things, never looking to the fact that that very day God could call him home. And what would it be? Or even what would all that stuff there do him? No good at all. Certainly not saying on a rainy day it's not good proverbs, teach wise stewardship, yes. But to not put our trust in those things. Not to put our trust in. And then we come to the verse 22 where he says, and by the way, because of all that we're talking about here, the natural inclination is you're going to worry. What do you do when you face worry, anxiety, and doubt? You turn to Matthew 6. You turn to Luke chapter 12, Verse 22. And you read these passages, and God reminds us that he is a wonderful father in heaven. He is gracious and a very good provider. He takes better care of us than we could imagine. He provides everything that we ever need. If you remember, I even took you to Psalm 37, verses 25 and 26, where David, the psalmist who was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write that, says, I've never begged bread, and I've never seen a righteous man beg bread. And that God always meets the need. Maybe not always the want, but he always meets the need. And that's, that's the clear point here. So he, he's brought us all to this point where he's taught the disciples. And if you're a disciple, what does a disciple in the Greek mean again? It's a learner. It's a follower of Christ. Not everybody who's a born-again believer is a disciple. Because many could say, I want the fire insurance, but I'm not willing to follow after the Lord as my master. Do You see the difference, the dichotomy there. And so he now has settled that for all of us. We, we understand that there's no halfway. There's no balancing act. We're all in for Christ where he's not in the timeshare business. Our hearts are surrendered, submitted to him. And we find ourselves now coming to our passage in, this morning in verse 35 where he's now going to make this transition from Worry, which is what he just talked about with the disciples, because he knew it's going to come because they're, it's a natural inclination. I, I'm a follower of Christ. I see what they're doing to the Christians. They didn't even recognize in six months they're going to crucify Jesus. Well, what's going to happen to you and I after, right? And so he's preserved this for you and I even today in the last of days. If somebody said, You can't meet in a church anymore, as Hebrews has commanded us, do not forsake the gathering of the saints. Are you worried about your life? Are you worried about going to jail? Are you worried about what people think that way? Or are you more concerned with the obedience of God, being obedient to God, in other words? And so he's going to transition, and he does it so beautifully because ultimately, if he left us in that place, don't worry, I'm a good father, I'm a good provider, we'd say amen, amen, that's the truth, okay. But he does something so beautiful that our father could do, and he gives us this guarantee and it guarantees the, the, the solution. He moves from worry to hope. Hope is good. But it's not just a, oh, by the way, hope in the Greek, it's, it means confidence. It's not just like, I hope um, I have a pair of shoes tomorrow. No, 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 he's using it in context of you will have, you can hope you will have these shoes, okay? But he moves to the solution, and the solution he draws every believer of Christ to, is to his second coming, which we believe and know and understand for the believer is the rapture. It's the very first thing that happens when we're caught up. And then, obviously, wedding feast of the Lamb, Revelation 19, 9, and then we come back. And and this is going to be very clear that it comes out as passage. I love how many of you have actually gone to this passage when you are sharing a pre-tribulation view with someone. Most of you probably don't have this passage circled as one of those passages that absolutely, again, testifies to 1 Thessalonians 5 and many other passages that has an eschatological or eschatology bend to it. We, we So even, you know, always, you know, just common just, oh, skip over, oh, that's not what this, no. It, it actually, if we believe and we take this literally, we understand this, it contradicts the possibility of a post- tribulation rapture. It it, it does, because where's the hope in that? So let's bow our heads. We're going to pray, and then we're going to read the Word of God. Father, we are ever grateful to be here this morning as sons and daughters um, gathered under your name, under your Word. So we submit ourselves here, Lord, this morning. We pray, God, that we lay down our concerns, our worries of this week And right now, Lord, we just want to meet with you. We need to be spiritually minded, God, and we pray that you will um, allow us to put on that helmet of salvation right now and hear what our spirit has to say, what your spirit has to say to us. And that these things would be everlasting in our hearts, burning, desiring to be more like you, Jesus, to follow after you. But Holy Spirit, we need your strength to do that. Lord, we don't trust ourselves. We know our emotions can betray us, but Lord, you are faithful. So God, we ask, please have your way with us here this morning as we gather. We ask this in your holy name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people prayed. Amen. Amen. Please look with me at Luke chapter 12, verse 35. Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. What does that mean to be girded? If I was going to serve you, you were coming next door, and I was going to serve soup or something, I would put maybe something around my waist. Or if I'm girding up like a belt, I'm, I'm preparing to serve. I'm going to do something. I'm going to be a doer. I'm not a spectator. I'm not girded up, and then I go and go, okay, everybody go get them at the game. I'm going to go gird up and sit in the stands. Wouldn't that be... I know we do. We have that. So I, I'm, I'm thinking, as I, before I even speak at an NFL game, I'm thinking, do we have people that actually put on the full garb and sit in the stands? And I'm like, oh, yeah, we do. Only in America. Of course we do. But you don't see anybody throw a kit on in Europe as they go and they sit in the stands, you know, and they're – no, it would be kind of funny if you're sitting next to a guy and he's like, you know, full-on shoulder pads – You know, the whole thing, or a hockey player. I was a hockey player, right? Got the elbow pads, the knee pads on, the shoulder pads, and he's sitting next to you, and you kind of turn to him as you're watching the game. Hey, how are you doing? He's like, I'm ready. And he's, well, then what are you doing up here? Get down there on the ice where you belong in the game, right? You would think it's a little, well, that's what he's kind of telling the believer. Has the church become impotent? Where we think it's our position to come, we punch the Sunday ticket? And then we go home, and we, we've done what we're supposed to do, and we're, we're now looking at it from afar. Okay, you guys do what you do here, but we're over here. Go get them. Rah, rah, rah. Go, Jesus. He said the lamps are burning. Why do you need a light? He, he's speaking to the fact that it's not just during the day when it's convenient or when but always ready, always serving, whether that's praying or being available. And you yourselves be like men who wait. Circle that in your Bible, please. We're going to see this this wait when, not ifs. We're going to see when. Wait for what? This is a good question. For the master. Now, again, he's going to use this in a parable-type setting, but we understand the spiritual connection to this. What are we waiting for as believers? We're waiting for Christ to come and get us, right? The second coming, the rapture of the church. We're waiting for Christ. He says, wait for the master. It's a good illustration. We understand that. When what? When he will return from the wedding. Now, I understand the difference. I had a a nice young woman in first service said, wait a minute. If this is a direct parallel to Christ in Revelation 19, 9, doesn't that mean what? that, That he went to the wedding feast? I said, no, no, no. This is a parable. He's teaching us what, that the master, and and please know it's not capital M, it's not capital, he's not talking specifically about Jesus here, but we understand the spiritual connection to this and the illustration that he's giving us. But he's saying that if you have a master in a house, again, I know today we don't, it's not common because we don't have that, but at the time of Rome in this writing, there's over 7 million slaves within the Roman occupation in that area. And so it wasn't uncommon when you have somewhere around 700,000 to maybe a million Roman uh, citizens and or uh, Jewish citizens like that. It was a one to seven ratio almost of servants. So you'd have a master who was more wealthy and he would hire or employ these servants. And so he's using that illustration that would have been common of that day. But again, we can connect the spiritual application here to what he's saying. He says that you'd be like a man who wait. For their master, when he will return from the wedding. We know that, we think of that, waiting for what? The rapture, we understand. That when, again, notice that twice now, when, not if, he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. What does that mean? That if they come, if if Jesus had come, okay, we're coming, they're ready. What's the actual application in that day? If a master comes to the door and he knocks and says, I'm home. Open the door. The servant's ready. It's not like he's got to come into the other room. He's expecting him to be there. He's expecting his return. So he's able to hold the door and open the door immediately so that that master can come into the house. So that's that's the actual understanding of what he's using in the parable. But what is he really spiritually talking about? He's talking about the fact that Jesus Christ is coming, being ready. Ta- this is a passage that deals with the doctrine of imminency, an immediate return of Christ. Christ can come at any moment, be ready, be watching. We're going to see that kind of language here, describing what we need to be doing as believers in Christ. So he says, when he comes and knocks into me, open to him, now please capture this immediately. Not like, well, later on today, okay, Jesus, I know you're coming, but I got other things to do. You know, I have to settle things up with the job. I got you know, my kids. I want to, let me say goodbye one more time to them. Let me do this and that. No, 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 no. There's none of that. It's, have you settled this in your heart? Anything between your heart and the Lord is idolatry by definition. Not to say we're not to love our children and love our wives. Or, of course, all those things are important. But not preeminent to Christ. Because when we get so caught up in the cares of this life, in the cares of this world, whether we intend to or not, it can distract us or it can actually pull us away or it can cause us to get complacent and comfortable, not looking, not watching. Maybe it's a if he comes in our generation, in our lives, not a when he comes. And That's why he uses the word when twice. Blessed. Now look, at this is how the Lord uses it blessed, he is the blessed to the disciples, are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find what? Watching. So two things, if you're, if you're keeping track and you're taking notes, what were the two things? The first one was what? Waiting. And then he just added what? Watching. Okay, so waiting and watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. This is interesting. He sort of does this little bit of a change here. Normally a master would come home and who would serve who? This is how we know there's a spiritual application to this and a connection because Jesus Christ clearly said, I came to serve and not to be served. So we start to get the idea, wait a minute, who's girding who? Who's serving who? We start to kind of pull that together. Uh, We understand what he's spiritually saying here. He's giving the illustration of his coming back to get us and and what it's going to be like, and it should immediately draw our minds and our attention. I think of the communion. We just celebrated the communion last Sunday in Resurrection Day, and I think about that because when I was reading those passages to you, whether it was in 1 Corinthians or in Luke, he said something very important in Matthew. He also brought, he says, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until I drink it with you in the kingdom of God or heaven. Again, he says, I long." to do that. I long to have this, but I will not with you again. And then we read Revelation chapter 19, 9, and it describes a wedding feast. And it's directly after, because obviously we know chapter four, after these things, Mao Tato and the Greek, we know it's after the church age, chapter two and three. If we've studied Revelation, if what I'm saying to you, you've never heard this before, I want to encourage you. All the teachings are online. They're on the church app. They're on the website. They're in your Bible. I encourage you read. We can read the Bible together, but they're up there to help you if you've never heard these teachings or you you you, need, you don't want some clarification there. But in Revelation chapter 19, it's after chapter 4, the, the focus has gone to the throne room of God. It's no longer on the church age. And then Revelation chapter 6 starts to pouring out of the wrath of the Lamb. Well, who's the Lamb? It's Jesus. It's talking about the great tribulation. And from chapter 6 all the way to chapter 19, there's not one mention of the church. Yet chapters 2 and 3 are full of it full of references to the church. Not one references to the church, the ecclesia, whatsoever. And then we get to Revelation chapter 19, 9, and we see the idea of the saints are now in heaven somehow. Well, he's told us how, right? We can read that in Revelation chapter, uh, or excuse me, First Thessalonians chapter 5, right? We can read that in First Corinthians uh, 50. There's or, Yeah, 50. So we can... I think it's verse 50 in chapter, was it 15, if I'm not mistaken? 1550. So we can turn around and we can read those passages, how it's going to be a twinkling of an eye in these things. So understand the spiritual connection, and it's easier for us, we get to look back. But for many of them, this is the first time some of them are hearing this. And it says that they sit down and they come to eat, and they will come and serve them. Well, that's the wedding feast of the Lamb for you and I as believers. That's what he's spiritually connecting this to. And if you should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them, now he's back into his parable here. So blessed are those servants. In other words, when we think of second watch and third watch, okay, so again, 9, you know, whatever, 9 a.m. to midnight or midnight to 3 a.m., excuse me, 9 p.m., I mean, to midnight or midnight to 3 a.m., all different hours. Coming to watch those. Uh, he comes and, and he's so blessed to see those that are serving. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what the hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. <clears throat> Is there anybody here that would argue with that? That if you knew somebody today at 430 was going to come break into your house, and as you know, the master of your own home, okay, uh, you sitting at your house knowing, are, are you going to be like, well, this is a good time to kind of open the doors, open the screen, and I, I think I'm going to go take a, a walkabout for the next four hours um, and just have at it. You know, hey, you know, while I'm at this, I'll just open the safe. I'll even put signs on the ground, walk this way. Safe to the right, firearms to the left. By the way, I'm not near the firearms. Clue, right? That's a good... That's a good indication this is a good time to break in and rob, right? I mean, we laugh, but he, I don't think Jesus could have made it any simpler what he's trying to communicate here, okay? He says, you know, what, what would you do? Would you would you allow? No, of course not. You wouldn't. Why? Because you'd be intentional. If you got word that somebody was coming to break in the house, what would you do? You'd be ready. For some of you, I understand that's a ch Sound, I get it. I I understand some of you that love to hunt. That's your thing. Others, it may be putting bars on the windows, right? However you come at that defense, right, the reality is you know that somebody's coming to break in. You're going to be prepared for that, right? You're going to be ready. In other words, there's an intention. It didn't just start at the moment when somebody was trying to break in as a thief. You already had thought about that prior, like you went and bought bars or... It's very simple when you explain this to, you know, if you're in Hurricane Alley or you're in Tornado Alley and somebody's hearing a storm, what why do they, why do we always read the Home Depot or the Lowe's or these, these uh, warehouse stores? Why are they always selling out of duct tape, OSB, uh, uh, things like that? Because what are they doing? They're preparing for the storm that's going to come. They're actually putting it up, OSB up on the wall. They're taping their windows for the glass, for all these things that are going down, so There's a preparation. What he's trying to teach us is spiritually speaking. We as believers should have that same intentional living and that same preparation in our lives because Jesus is coming soon. And we ought to live like that. And he said, you know, that if the master had known that the hour of the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready. There's our next word we given, okay? We're we're told to wait, we're told to watch, and now we're told to be ready. For the son of man, now he makes it very clear so nobody can miss it anymore. He moves from the parable illustration and he calls it right out. And he says, "For the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect." Everybody got it? Now we know we're talking oh, he's talking about Messiah himself. He's talking about God. In other words, What does the doctrine of imminency do for us? Imminency, in other words, soon coming or coming anytime? It keeps us holy. It puts us on high alert. I don't know if it's DEFCON 3 or DEFCON 1. I can't remember which is ever the more severe one. But we're we're on high alert for his promise, his coming. And when we live our lives like that, we're not holding on to the cares of the things of this world. I'm sure you're not going to try to fit in one more video game, right? Or you're not going to, you know, let me hang on. I've been binge watching. Let me get one more episode in. No, 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 you're not, that's not, that's not going to occupy your thoughts. It's not, let me finish that one more report, you know, for the workaholics out there. None of that's going to matter. You're not going to be thinking about any of that in that moment. You're going to be worshiping and celebrating. The Lord is coming and, well, friends, what are we waiting for? Because he's already given us that promise and we should be living that way now. And that's what he's doing, he's preparing the worshiper, he's preparing the disciple. Now he's going to show, again, because remember, the religious leaders there, we started in chapter 11, I brought you through that in our introduction, that's the context. And now he's going to bring us to the point of, well, there's other people in the crowd. There's wolves in sheep's clothing, there's people that are going to gather around the believers and they're going to know Christianese, but they're really not walking after the Lord. They're really not all in. Then Peter said to him, Lord, do you speak this parable only to us or to all people? That's a good question, Peter. Is this just for 2,000 years ago, just to the people that were gathered at that moment, in that circle, those disciples just then? Or Lord, are you preserving this to speak to us 2,000 years later, today, for such a time as this? It's a good question, Peter. And the Lord said, who then... Is that faithful and wise steward? He answers it directly through the biblical axiom of a wise and faithful steward or servant. What does that mean? Well, a disciple who is faithful, one with faith, who's continuing in the faith, in the present perfect, who will be in faith, is in faith, and continues in faith, faithful. So we first get that right out of the way. The second thing is wise Steward. What is a steward? One who's been given much and what they've been entrusted with. What are they doing with it? Now, what is wisdom? We know the biblical answer to that is it's the knowledge ascertained in Scripture appropriately applied. By definition is wisdom. Biblical knowledge applied correctly is biblical wisdom. So he says very clearly, the faithful, those that are with faith, those that are looking those that are waiting and watching and ready, and those that take seriously the word of God and what he's saying, the wise, the steward, the servant of God who's been given much, who's been entrusted with resources, every one of you here have, if you're a born-again believer, every one of us, he says, who then is the faithful wise steward? He's answering the question, Peter. Whom his master will make rule over his household to give them their portion of food in due season. And he's certainly not just talking about physical food. Blessed is that servant. This is about the third time that Jesus has now said blessed or blessing. He's telling us, this is, it's like when we read the Beatitudes. Where is the blessing? He's telling us where the blessing's at. It's being in the will of God and being expectant. Expectant of the Lord. Who his master will find so, and here's our fourth circle it in your Bibles, doing. So the first one was wait. The second one was watching. The third one, he tells us, is being ready. And the fourth one we see is doing. We know it as being doers of the word. So it's not enough just to hear like you all are here today. It's not enough to say, I'm waiting for God to be coming. That's that's wonderful, right? It's not enough just to be watching. Watch, your redemption draws nigh. That's biblical and important. And It's not enough just to be ready. Okay, I've gone out, and spiritually speaking, I have downsized and simplified my life so that I'm not being caught up by the cares of this world and the things that are entangling me. As Paul would say, a good soldier can't be entangled in the affairs of the world and be focused on the ministry of God that God has for them. Doesn't mean we're not to work. Of course we are. It is our ministry for many of us. Many of us aren't full-time Uh, you know, working at a church, that's your ministry, right? Um, So he's not saying not to do that, but what he's saying is with the intention of doing what? It's your tent making. And while you're tent making, what are you doing? Leading people to Jesus. That's why you're really there. You're giving the gospel. And so the last part is doing. Remember I gave this illustration of the, you know, the football player up in the stand. He's not doing, he could be, he could be waiting, I know Jesus is coming. He could be watching. He could even be ready. I got all, the, I got all the, uh, the outfit on, the equipment on. There used to be a term when I was younger. I don't know if they use it anymore. I have to talk to some of our young folks, find out if this is still being used. There was a term called poser. You remember that term? Some of you know what that is? A poser. It was a person that had all the garb, man. they looked the part. You know, and yet when it came to actually carrying out the action, they had never done it a day in their life, a moment in their life. It's not like they weren't good at it, like and they're trying to work at it. That's not what we're talking about. Uh, I can remember the term used a lot of times it was in the, the skate parks or the skateboarders. You know, they would have all the new equipment, all the great things, and they had a beautiful new skateboard and the whole thing with it. And you'd look at it, man, this is, have you ever stood on that thing? Oh, no, 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 no. Well, I break an elbow, that, that's that's dangerous. But you got the sneakers, you got the shoes, you got the hat, you, you look the part. Yeah, and I'm feeling good. You know? I mean, we laugh about it, but now let's take that and we laugh, we all were laughing, right? Yeah, okay, now let's bring it about face and look at the spiritual application of that for our lives. Are there Christian posers? Jesus calls it wolves. Dressing up in sheep's clothing, speaking Christianese, but not actually being doers. Never stepped a day on the skateboard. Never walked a day in the ministry for our Lord and Savior. That's the fourth thing. When He comes, right? Truly, I say to you that He will make Him a rule over all that He has. But isn't it sad He has to put a butt in there? Verse forty-five. But if that servant in his heart, or if that servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming, and he begins to beat the male and female servants and to both be, you know, drink and to be drunk. So let's just pause there for a minute. We read this here, you know, certainly the impact of growing holy doesn't doesn't precipitate um, growing lazy. Right? It, it should have the opposite effect in us. And and so what he's drawing the attention to, and I think it's it's multiple fold. I don't know if a lot of you have caught that. I, I just recently was rereading this again, and Lord was speaking to my heart about this. And remember, I was talking about post-tribulation, pre-tribulation, and Jesus absolutely frowns more than so. He he in such a negative way here speaks about the beating of of male and female servants. This is not something that Jesus sees as a good thing brought in the light. Let's bring this to the context of what he's talking about right here to the disciples and to the religious leaders. Hey, stop beating the bride. The religious leaders were, were engaging in legalism. There's no room for legalism in this church. Uh, there's no room for legalism in the body of Christ. There's no room for legalism in, in, in a relationship with Jesus Christ. There's truth and love. One without the other is incomplete. It's incomplete, and so it's not a balancing act at all. Please understand that, And biblically speaking. And so what he's drawing the attention here is that, that what was happening is these masters and these other servants, they actually turned around. Rather than drawing men and women to Christ, they started beating them and drawing them to the You need to listen to me and do what I tell you. And the whole whip is going, you know, and what are they doing? Are they drawing men and women to Christ, or are they drawing them to themselves and creating uh, Nicolaitans? Uh, We know what's happening here. We see this is what's being written. This isn't a respect of authority. Let's not take this out of context or pretext. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking with the intent for a religious leader, for a servant of God to take with intent to mistreat or abuse, beat. I don't know. I don't think he could have used a stronger word, another Christian. There's no room for that. In the kingdom of God. there's no root for that. now why do I make such a big deal about that? Well because he did but why else do I make a big deal about that? because it has an eschatological or an eschatology type and times perspective 27% of your Bible's prophecy we say that all the time well guess what we're in a chapter you're looking at this how are we prophecy because didn't Jesus say in first Thessalonians chapter 5 that he would not the church is not given to wrath. You've read that. We studied that. We even did a, a breakout on um, End Times events. I sometimes do those updates, and we've studied that in, for hours in detail because it's in the Word of God. But here he, he doesn't condone. He absolutely abhors the idea of beating the bride. But if you just think through that, did Jesus Christ go to the cross to redeem mankind, humanity, from sin, past, present, and future? Everybody should say, yes, amen. We just celebrated Resurrection Day, right? He went to the cross, and then what else? He rose again to prove his claim on deity, as well as the God-man humanity there as well. (coughs) That is evident. That was the sign he gave. Remember, like Jonah, he told even the religious leaders. Now, what would it be like, and we read in 1 Thessalonians 5, where it says that the church would not be given to wrath, And we know the great tribulation is also coming because that's in Revelation chapter 6. It's in Matthew 24. It's throughout your Bible. I mean, it's really, even in the Old Testament, it's throughout the whole Bible. You're the bride of Christ. He died to redeem you and I, right? We've been justified. Legal term he even uses. We've been found before the judge innocent in our transgression because of the blood of the Lamb of Jesus Christ. Amen? We've been washed by the blood. So here we are. We're found that way. And now, if Jesus Christ says, you know what? I'm going to throw those Christians through the great tribulation. What would he be doing? He'd be beating the very bride. We have a problem in scripture then. Because it would contradict what we just read here. Where Jesus said, it's never right to beat our fellow servant. Or for a master to beat the servant. So is Jesus Above this? Would Jesus contradict his own word? Never. Never do we see the word of God ever contradicted by the Lord in any capacity. That's one of the reasons why I know the book is holy and true, because it doesn't contradict itself. So I say this because it yields to a very simple pre-tribulation understanding that the church will be raptured. After all, that's what's in context as well. Didn't he say, because when the son of man comes, so he's talking about that. So it's not like I'm interjecting something that he didn't put in verse 40. Therefore be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you don't expect. He introduced it. The Lord put that in here. All I'm simply doing is connecting the dots of what he said and then tying into what he says is my master is delaying his coming. He's using in the parable twofold message here a near fulfillment, a far fulfillment of that, just like all prophecy. And the near fulfillment he was talking about of what? That that the parent disciple would be a sluggard, lazy, comfortable, not even invested in the kingdom of God. And so he figures, well, heck, the master's away. I can, you know, what do they say? The the, something play, uh, the master's away, everybody play or something like that. The mice will play or the cat's away. You get the point, whatever. I don't know these things. I know scripture. I don't know the analogies, whatever it is, but you get the point that when the cat's away, the mice will play or something like that. So uh, pray for me. So um, as, we, as we read these things, it draws our attention to the fact that that's what he's talking about. He's not going to beat the bride. He's not going to beat the bride. not saying that we're not going to have tribulation, but not the great tribulation. Because he's coming, and he's going to redeem the bride, and he's not going to beat the bride. The other thing that he's drawing out here is we're not to be in an excessive lifestyle. Certainly pastors, elders, we have no business touching alcohol. 1 Timothy 3 makes that clear. Ephesians 5 makes that clear. What is your dissipation resource? What are you going to be doing? If you're filled with the Holy Spirit... And that's your dissipation, and you go to minister someone, and I go to the hospital, or Pastor Steve's over the ho- is over the hospital ministry for the church, and you know he goes and he had a you know glass of wine at the house, which he never would do, but he did that, and then he goes and he and he meets with somebody that's laying in the bed, and maybe they're a recovering alcoholic or, or whatever the situation is, and he goes, hey, how you doing? And it's not like he's like, ah, you know, but he, you know he's in there, and they they smell his, oh, and immediately it doesn't matter a word he says after that. Because the stumbling blocks, it's just been laid down. Ephesians 5, what's your dissipation, right? What's his resource and how does he want to use that? You can either be filled with, he says, you can either be used or filled with both. Ephesians 5 makes it clear. It draws the dichotomy in that point. But the rest of, the rest of you know, the believers that aren't full-time pastors or something like that, that are not falling under First Timothy 3, overseers, as the scripture would teach, he doesn't say there's anything wrong with having a glass of wine with dinner, right? Or or whatever your preferred beverage is. But not to the point of where you, what? Become drunk. When you become intoxicated, then that's when the rub starts to happen. That's what he's talking about here. And he's saying it's an extreme. And if you're taking that extreme, why are you, if you knew Jesus was coming for you, would you go out? I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just going to be as blunt as I can. Would you go out and get drunk? Would you be hitting the bars as a believer in Christ? You know Messiah is coming at like 2 p.m. to take us home and rapture us. So the last thing you want to do at that moment is go hit the bars. And I'm not talking because you want to go, you know, give the gospel outside or something like that and not enter in. I'm talking you're going with the intention to get intoxicated. Those things are mutually exclusive. Like, why would you? There's no room for that. What, what, why would anybody be doing that? That's effectively what he's saying, that there's a sloth, there's this is laziness, there's a comfort, that cares of the world begun to take over, and it's where am I going, what vacation, this, you know, all the things. Again, nothing wrong with a vacation, but if that becomes the, like it's all about it all the time, that's a problem. The, the priorities are, are skewed, and so he goes on and says, look, he comes, he's going to beat the servants, and then he's going to eat, drink, be drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him, at an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in two and appoint him a portion with the unbelievers. Whoa. When Jesus uses a parable to describe what he's going to do to the purported disciple, he's not truly a disciple. He's an unbeliever. That's why he's putting him in the company of unbelievers. Is he going to cut him in two. That's sobering, isn't it? In other words, this direct disobedience, right? And he groups them with unbelievers, and he groups them with the unfaithful because they received the similar punishment by rejecting Jesus. That's that's what we read here. That's that should make you kind of wake up. There's no room to be backslidden. there's no room, you know. Certainly, we're not perfect; we blow it. But are we going to Christ and saying, "Lord, forgive me. I, I don't. It's not what I wanted to do." I I blew it, Lord. I love you. Forgive me. And, and he's so faithful. He's so good. He desires to do that. Forgive us. He died you know, so that we could be washed in his blood and cleansed. And that servant who knew the master's will and did not prepare himself or doing according to his will, he shall be beaten with many stripes. Now he talks about who will receive that the wrath, the tribulation, with many stripes. But he who did not know. So we also see something a little bit different here. We see that the judgment's not the same for everybody. So, in other words, if it's presumptuous sin, so you, you, you clear out no. Um, the Lord has told me not to fornicate. I'm a believer in Christ. I read my Bible, but I don't think it applies to me because I really love this girl. So it's different for me. The Bible doesn't apply to me that way. I'm going to continue to do it. And you know what? I think God's okay with it. I think God's absolutely fine with that. Are you messing up because of uh, make an accident. Can I just say it that way? Or, or No, that's presumptive. You're presuming upon God. In the Old Testament, during the sacrificial process, if you read through Leviticus, there's not one single sacrifice ever declared or dedicated in the Old Covenant to presumptive sin. There wasn't one. If anything, it was akin to what we would think of as the unpardonable sin today. In the Old Testament, which was the rejection of, of God. That's what the unpardonable sin is. It's a rejection of Jesus Christ. It's blasphemy. It's a rejection. And so he, he, he sets this up for one who claims to be a disciple. In other words, you know, the poser, if I can use that term again, one who's not truly a believer, but acts the part, speaks the Christianese, a wolf in sheep's clothing. It's, it's, be mindful, he's talking to the church. He's talking to the church. Do you do you recognize that? We're looking around a room here. I don't ever presume that everybody that's in this room knows Jesus. Um, even if you can say amen and hallelujah, uh, I don't ever make a presumption. I, I First of all, I don't judge the heart of anybody in here. I'm not equipped to do that. Only God is. I am a fruit inspector, certainly, but so are all of you, right? I mean, if I started to do things that were unbecoming a soldier of Christ, it would disqualify me from what I do in the pulpit, wouldn't it? How is any of us any different? The reality is we can all gather under a common covering. The church is referred to as a covering in 1 Corinthians 11, particularly. God is our ultimate covering, Jesus Christ. But but the church is a covering in chapter 5. But many people gather here. We don't know. I mean, by the way, don't look at your brother or sister and be like, is that you? No sin hunts here. We don't need that legalism. No sin hunts here. But you get the point. I mean, it's sobering, isn't it? Especially when you love your brothers and sisters here. And you just don't know. We really never know. Only the Lord knows. But look what he also does. But he says, but in verse 48, and I, this is compassion of the Lord. But he who did not know, so in other words, this is not presumptuous sin. But he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. Now, I know some of you are like, man, I don't to be beaten at all. <laughs> Born-again believers don't get beat. Born-again believers don't get beaten by the Lamb. Only rejecting, unbelieving, unfaithful men and women do. And that's the consequence to rejecting the one true God of the universe, the king of kings. And the reality is that's still not even as the heart and desire for you. He died to save you. He dies because he loves you. He rose to prove to you he could redeem you. And all he wants you to do is place your face and trust in him and live after him. And he'll come and live in your heart. And you'll have beautiful coenia uh, fellowship with him forever. That's his real desire. So before anybody get the wrong understanding of the character of God, please understand that's who God really is. He's our love, isn't he? I mean, he's in terms of endearment. He's our love. Whether we're struggling with addiction, you know, people, people are struggling with pornography, people that are struggling, you know, committed crime, thief, whatever the sin is, God is able... And and just to forgive our sins, if we come to Him and we just say, Lord, I'm blowing it. I want and desire this reconciliation. But I certainly, as you testify in Scripture, I fall short of the glory of God, Lord. Do your work in me, and you mean it, He will. It's it's beautiful. Salvation's in a moment, sanctification's a lifetime. He says, yet this person will will receive just a few. For everyone to whom much is given from him, much will be required. And to him who much has been committed of him, they will ask more. The expectation is that every single believer in Christ will be all in. There is no room for the timeshare. It's not like I'm going to rent a week here in, you know, Colorado and a week. No, no, no. (laughs) That doesn't work for for the Lord, the Messiah. No, no, he... He wants all of our hearts. He's not looking for fractions or chambers of the heart. He wants all of your heart. And he'll enlarge your heart to make even more room for him as he expands it with his love and beauty. And I think this is vital. I, I, I can't think of a time, especially with the technology revolution in the last 40 years, I can't think of I mean, Have you ever studied history? And you look back 60, 70 years ago, what? life was like some of you are old enough maybe here to remember you know an ice box when they actually delivered ice out of the back of a truck and there was no freezer some of you can remember growing up where electric you were far enough out of a city or area so you didn't have electric um, you know it, we're not past that last generation yet you know i we're getting close like in the next probably 5 to 10 15 years we may not have anybody that can I'm sure there's still some really rural areas like that still, but, but for the most part, most of us have been con- conformed to the modern era of technology. And I want you to think about that for a minute. We have access. How many Bibles do you have in your house? How, how many do you have computers and, and, and dumb phones? I'm sorry, you call them smart. Smartphones that, that, that you can use. How many of us can go to Blue Letter Bible not knowing a lick of Greek or Hebrew, not knowing how to use a strong concordance or a lexicon, a Hebrew or Greek lexicon, and be able to go to Blue Letter Bible and literally type in a word, and moments later, it translates. A lexicon is a dictionary that's been locked in time to the original meaning of when it was used in the language that was common and that it was written in. That's a lexicon. How many of us can do that without actually understanding how to read the Greek to be able to back, link back to etymology of a word? to understand what we're reading, to know where the root of these words. So we get to understand the true meaning of what Christ was trying to communicate in the Greek when he wrote this, or when he inspired this through the original language of Greek, for example, in our New Testament. Today, we can literally go to Blue Letter Bible, put in the word, hit enter, or whatever, you know, click your mouse, and in less than a second, boom! The word's there. It tells us what the definition meant. It links it to other parallel passages how many of you have commentaries? You know, commentaries at one time were, were just, a fra- the of the long- just the cost and the law, just the clergy. And now every human being, although I always, my opinion is the best commentary you have is the Bible. The Bible is your best commentary. When people ask, well, how does he, I read the Bible, read the Bible. It's a, it's a commentary. It tells you, you book the book. It, it helps us understand that's why I brought us back to chapter 11 so we could stay in context of what we're reading and not misapply or misunderstand what God is communicating to us through these parables. It's going to become very important next week if the Lord should tarry as we go into chapter 13 because we're going to get into the parable of the mustard seed, the parable 11. And there's a, um, there's a term, expositional consistency. It's a, it's a fancy term to mean that when God uses and outlays a principle within Scripture, he doesn't change it. Leaven. If I asked you what leaven means in scripture, what would you say? Sin. Almost all of you know that. Sin. You've read your scripture. You've seen God. It doesn't all of a sudden mean something good later on, does it? It's expositional consistency. He keeps the same. So this is why we go back and keep everything in context. It's good hermeneutics. So as we're reading here, it's important to keep this in context. Also, he's talking about end time events. He's also talking about the character of a true believer, right? But he's also teaching us that there's no room for Christians to be living in a backslidden state. It's not, no matter how much America or a neutered church tries to convince you that it's okay for you to come to a church and not read your Bible and not turn around and spend devotional time daily with the Lord. I'm telling you, it's a lie from the pit of hell. It's contrary. It's an alternate doctrine. And it's contrary to what we read in Galatians 1.6. And Paul dealt with that. When you have alternate doctrines, you throw them out. Because we're living in that time. And I'm sorry for getting off on that rabbit trail with you. But it's, it's important because Jesus was speaking about these things so that we wouldn't fall or succumb to these temptations and the trials and being overwhelmed and the things in our life, Or more importantly, to be so engrossed in the cares of this world. He says, I come, or I came, and, and this is naturally what's going to happen. When you stand with truth, you're going to get people that are going to disagree with you. Uh, I came to send fire on the earth, the judgment. Fire is always a refining tool to judgment. And how I wish it were already kindled. That's sobering, right? The work of the cross brings division, actually. But I have a baptism. And what was his baptism? It was the cross. the cross. It was the cup of wrath. That he described. Remember in the Seder, your third cup was a cup of wrath? He's pointing back to it. It's what they did when they were together. It was a Seder. I mean, they were pre Passover, right? They were just going to celebrate the Passover. But I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how distressed I am till it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to give peace? Please circle in your Bibles on earth. What's he talking about here? Did he come to bring peace on the earth? through the way that Israel thought at that time? How did they expect him to bring peace? What were the religious leaders expecting him to do, including some of the Jewish people at the time? They expected him to overthrow Rome, and that was how they were going to bring peace through that, right? But Jesus Christ came, and peace is brought through relationship with him. He says, I didn't come to bring peace on earth through the physical Roman government and overthrowing them. that way. He says, no, what I came to bring is eternal. It's an eternal peace. It's not just going to be peace on earth. It's peace always, forever. That's what I've come to bring. I tell you not at all, but rather division. For from now on fire, five, excuse me, in one house will be divided, three against two and two against three. Again, based on their belief or rejection. Father will be divided against son. Son against father. Mother against daughter. And daughter against mother. mother Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law. And daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. He says that's what's going to happen. Because if you're a Christian, you're not going to compromise. You're not going to compromise. You're going to honor the scriptures. It's better for your soul. It's going to allow the other person that's rejecting at that moment to realize there's a choice to be made. It's not just, you know, a kumbaya soup not all not always lead to heaven. And by the very um, by the very buffeting of Satan that happens to that unbeliever because of the fact that they're you know, not being told it's okay, everything's okay, continue in your sin. It brings about what? It brings about division because there is a separation and it's supposed to be there. So that there's a hurting of hearts. So sorrow, Ecclesiastes 7.3, sorrow draws the heart, so it draws the heart to Christ. It, 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 sadness is better than laughter, it says. Why? It draws us to Christ to condition our hearts, to make us realize we're missing something, and that's something in some, someone, and that's Jesus, and, and it's by intention. So he's saying, this division I come to bring, it's purposeful, because those that reject Jesus, they need him just like we did before we came to Christ. But if you try to cover it up or you try to ease it, you're you're working with Satan. Can I be that direct about it? You're not being used as a vessel of the Lord. You're actually working against God. He says, he is is with me, is for me. Right, who He works against me is against me. He didn't mince words. That's what we're doing. So he says, understand that. That that division needs be. Anytime you put... Again, anything between your heart and the Lord is, by definition, idolatry. It's compromise. And I know that's heavy this morning as I look out at you. I know it's because we all have family members that we love, right? We just had Resurrection Day Easter. They come to dinner. You say, can I pray? Oh, here he goes again. I've just given Thanksgiving to the Lord. But all of a sudden, it's like you broke out into a 50-minute sermon. And all you did is thank Jesus Christ for the ham or whatever you had, right? The monogat, whatever you're eating. Sorry, Manicotti uh, for the Americans. So, I'm joking. (laughs) Non-attentance. Lord, forgive me. (laughs) He just convicted me right now, right there and there. God is so good. Forgive me. What he's trying to say here is that that's what's going to happen, and we need to pray for those people, but it's not going to be convenient for them, and it's not supposed to be. It's not supposed to be. It's supposed to draw repentance. It's supposed to draw the work of the heart. It's not a misunderstanding. Look at verse 54. Then he also said to the multitudes Whenever you see a cloud rising out of the west, immediately you say a shower is coming, and so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, uh, you say there will not be, or there will be hot weather, and there is. Hypocrites. Do you remember what that term means in the Greek? It's not what we think it means today, the way we use it. Saying one thing and being another, it means actor in the Greek he's saying you're like putting on the face I don't know the another term that you're playing the you're playing the you're playing the, the Christian. you're playing the hypocrite, playing the actor, okay because they know it's just like you know back in that day, especially when you're you're farming and you're you need the rain and you you're not gonna plant seed in the middle of, if it's gonna rain right i I couldn't remember what it was in first service. I said, hey, somebody'll come up and, and at the end of first service and tell me I can there used to be a saying, remember, red sky in the morning, sailor's warning. Red sky at night, sailor's delight. How many of you knew that? Some of you have heard that, right? Where were you first service when I was like up here? I was like, oh, I don't remember. Some, you know, servant saint came up afterwards. Here, pastor, we feel bad for you. So, thank you. Because I was struggling through it. And they just let it happen. They didn't. They just watched it. Watch me sit up here sweating. But he says, whenever you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say a shower's coming, and so it is. And when you, when you see the south wind blow, you say there will be hot weather, and there is. Actors, hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and the earth, but how, but how is it that you do not discern this time? Who was he talking to again? The religious leaders that accused him of what? Of having a demon in him. He says, how can you, that's why we went back to chapter 11. Context, he's looking, how could you know the weather, and you acknowledge what's going to happen, the whole red sky in the morning, sailor's warning, right? Red sky at night, sailor's sailors' delight, right? You know what that means, or their version of that, right? You know what that means, and you don't question it. Here, the Messiah stands right before you, and that you question. He's He's challenging them. What are you doing? You know, the people, they understand the weather, but they were given no attention to spiritual things. And I fret for how much of the church today. We're living in the last of the last days. And so much of the church, I mean I mean it, even in our area here, so many churches are don't read the Bible any longer. And they're being lulled into this false sense of comfort and security. And it's staggering because Jesus Christ wants us to be in the know. He wants us to be watching. He wants us to be ready. He wants us to be doing. Yes, and when even, let's continue here. We'll we'll close with this for time. Yes, and why even of yourselves do you not judge what is right? When you go with your adversary to the courts or the magistrate, make every effort along the way to settle with him, lest he drag you into the judge and judge deliver you to the officer and the officer throw you into prison. He's making it relatable. He's saying, like, if this is what was going to happen, you what would you do? Everyone needs to have their own account settled. Before, if you're going to go to court, you hire an attorney, you want to have your case ready. You want to go before the judge, and you want to be found what? Blameless. You want to be found not convicted, right? So he's saying you are intentional about that, right? Just think about it. You're going to go to the judge. You're going to deliver you're going to deliver your message. You're going to make every effort a long way to settle with him because you you don't you want peace. You would do that, right? What's the spiritual application of this, right? That we need to get right before God because we have the opportunity to do it. But when you're standing in before the judge, can you change anything then in the courts today? Can you? No, it's too late. That's the illustration he's giving us here. When you're walking, he says, in your, when you go your way with your adversary, and you go to the magistrates, make every effort along the way to settle them, because once you're there, you're there. There is no more of a chance to do that. Lest he drag you to the judge, and judge deliver you to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison, unless you be unless you stand before the judge and you are found wanting. I tell you, you shall not depart from there till you have paid the very last mite. S should make everybody's hair in the neck stand up, because he says, Be prepared. Again, Be prepared, because as we stand before the Lord, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. There will be no one that gets to say, I want a mulligan, or redo. There's no one that's going to say, but, no, because the books are going to be opened. And everything that we have ever done is read before us. In full clarity. And we either have one or two responses. One is, yes, everything you said is true. But then we looked to Jesus and said, but I've been washed by the blood of the lamb and I'm redeemed. And therefore, I've been reconciled to you, my father, my God, and you bow and you worship. And he says, in you, I find no fault because of the blood of my son. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your reward. But to the other, to the other person, that stands there and says, but wait a minute, I want to I change my mind. No, no, no. You had your life. You had your time to do that. To so the other person, no, no, no. Well, I did those things, but I was a pretty good person, huh? No, when you broke my law, when you committed one atrocity, you've committed them all. And you're found guilty. And therefore, you will be judged as one convicted, and you will be sentenced to your prison, which is eternity in hell, separated from the one true God, because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. At that point, even the unbeliever will be bowed, and as he looks up and knows the love in his father's eyes, I think the worst part of that eternity, besides the gnashing of teeth that Jesus describes... is to think about that person that's standing there and as he looks into the eyes of his father, our father, God, and knows that he will never be to, he will never be able to be with him again. And nothing can change that. I can't think of a worse fate for or worse punishment for a human being effort. And there's nothing that can be done at that point. Musicians come on up. Let's let's worship, because uh, we have the blood of the Lamb. So as we read, brothers and sisters, go ahead and stand with me. We'll worship. As we read, wait, watch, ready, doing. That's our call to action. Wait, watch, ready, doing. That's who we are. That's what we do. Praise God. Father, we thank you, and uh, Lord, may we take these things deeply to our hearts. May we apply them. May we worship you, and God, may we be set free. And thank you, Jesus, so much for your work on that cross and for the resurrection. And Lord, we pray for this lost and dying world. Lord God, please save now. Save now, Lord. Receive our worship, Lord, as your children gathered to their God. In your name we pray these things, Jesus Christ. Amen.